0: I will make my best guesses. I pretend to have no wisdom that uh so, as way of reminder, <laughs> um, everyone deconstructs and reconstructs components of their identity as different stages happen. I think of my when I became a dad. The way I view myself, the way I view the world around me, what mattered, how did I want to spend my time, money, and energy began to come into question. I think similarly, as we navigate different periods of life, we're constantly under this process of deconstruction and reconstruction. So my guess is as each of us have had a major deconstructive, reconstructive moment in our own life, let that be some of the backdrop as to which uh, we think of these things. So here's uh, one more disclaimer idea, and then we'll kind of move into the content there's moments where individual deconstruction, reconstruction meets somebody else's deconstruction, reconstruction. And when you start gathering a few of those people who are reconstructing and deconstructing the same ideas, you can begin to move towards societal deconstruction, reconstruction. So, same thing, sin, right? Uh, institutional sin always starts with individual sin it's one person who does something that they think it's okay and they maybe teach somebody else and then as a community becomes convinced of this particular idea it becomes a societal sin and so this idea of uh we've seen it happen before 60s and 70s the sexual revolution right like we threw off restraint in particular ways and right we saw that go through the culture in a way And i think similarly we're in a a moment like that so um that being said i think there's these are four elements that I think people who are deconstructing, reconstructing are looking for today. They come from Tara Isabella Burton's book, but it's, uh, it's pretty, pretty cool. And maybe this will help. I'm going to give a, an example that will help you understand where this all comes from. Have you ever heard of soul cycle? Man, must, maybe it's a new You know what I'm talking about? Okay. It's a cycling class. Intense. Intense. Um, Really intense. So, soul cycle, if you, if you, I like to say they don't sell products, they sell you virtue. Right? When you think about all the commercials for the brands that were, they're no longer telling you about the Subaru that you can buy, they're telling you about how they support this or that cause. They're not supporting, we're, we're, we're being marketed with virtues instead of products anymore. So, it's a, a different age than that being said. And I think marketers are beginning to recognize that spirituality sells, and so they're attaching spirituality to their products. If you buy this product, you 'll be the kind of virtuous person who supports these causes. so support Subaru. If you buy my so right if a marketing person can recognize, I can make you think you're more virtuous, I'm going to sell. And so in doing so, they've kind of co-opted spirituality. But let me help, let me help you understand the soul cycle example. Soul cycle is a cycling class. That when you go in, you, you have this ritual of taking off your shoes and clipping into your Soul Cycle sandals. There's a special space in which you go in, you start the conversation there, the mood changes, and then you lock into your bike. And it's you in this dialogue between the, the head leader type of person. You pay your fee, you get in. And it's wild. And looking at some of the stories, some of the reviews online of Soul Cycle, people's Soul Cycle leaders are doing their weddings. They're finding that the soul cycle person, their uplifting message in the middle of about you can press on because you can press on through anything. They're all that to say, people are beginning to find the elements of spirituality that are familiar, meaningful, desired, and they're finding different places. Soul cycle is a good example one of those places that it can give you all the components that you're looking for in religion and spirituality in a place. That being said, I think this tells us something, that people are still looking for these four things. They're still looking for meaning. They're looking to find out that question of why the world is the way that it is. And everyone is making a guess at this answer. Everyone, whether you believe in A, B, C, or D, you're eventually making a guess at something you don't have an official answer for, and so you're making a guess. But recognizing that means we can move into that space as well. I tell people, hey, I'm also guessing at it, but I think I've got better evidence in my corner. That though this is a leap of faith, though I'm convinced of the gospel and I know it to be true, I recognize you're guessing at things as well. So let me tell you why my guess may work in your particular circumstance. And so the way we hear this conversation, you ever heard somebody say the universe did this for me? I just want to thank the universe today <laughs> for bringing this person into my life. Send me positive vibes. I, don't, I never felt vibes, but if you can find some, put them in a bottle, let me know, I'll take them. But this idea that when people say statements like that, the universe did this, what they're looking for is a cohesive story that tells them why things are the way that they are. And so when someone is saying that to you, what they're really saying is, hey, I believe something out there is organizing things. I just haven't taken the time to figure that out. So when you hear that in conversation, an opportunity to begin introducing that idea. Secondly, uh, people are looking for purpose. How is my daily decision-making linked to the fabric of reality? How does the decision I make to actually read my Bible today, to sit down, to be generous, to tithe, to do these kind of things, how does that actually relate to this big picture of meaning that I'm trying to figure out? This is how I think you'll, you'll hear people say it. They say, I'm just trying to do my part. I'm just trying to make the world a better place. What they're really saying is, I sense there's something I should be doing that helps the rest of this big picture make sense, and I'm trying to fit into that narrative. So if we can begin identifying ways that the church provides meaning, the answers to those questions as to why things are the way that they are, if we can provide purpose in a way that your daily activity actually does budge the needle, your decision to sit down and read a text actually helps God interact with you. When you begin to tie those things together, it opens up doors for conversation. Third, community. In theory, we're living in the most connected time in all of human history. Uh, the, the person from our story last night, who shall continue to remain nameless, texted me. <laughs> said, heard you were talking junk, bro. <laughs> the person lives in a different time zone, five hours away, a five-hour difference. And, um, but that connection happened in an instant. But I also think there's a chance we're living in the loneliest time of human history. That in our ability to create really wide relationships, we've created really shallow relationships. And so I think in that we're recognizing people are hungry for meaningful relationships. So they find that this soul cycle instructor, who seems to be here every week in my life because I pay him to be, is a consistent presence in my life that's speaking positive truth. And so uh I'll, I'll... I think this is how it kind of made sense in my world. Before I left social media about two years ago, I had 1,500 friends on Facebook. In that world, the word friend lost its meaning and value to me. I could rattle off information about what people were up to. I could say, did you happen to see what so-and-so is doing on social media, but there was no engagement between us. Those things were just data facts that didn't really matter to me. It's similar, like, I could tell you facts about my wife, her hair color, size, weight, everything, but unless you're here sitting and talking to my wife, having lunch with her, you don't know my wife. I think similarly, we've come into a place where relationships are measured by data, not by engagement. And so when we think about this idea that we get the opportunity, I mean, the church is the best place to provide engaging community that addresses the spiritual needs that other places in the world aren't necessarily addressing as clearly. The fourth thing people are looking for is uh, ritual and consistent practice. Now, hear me out because this is kind of a scary word for us in the, in the Protestant world. Um, rituals are experiences which bond the individual to the community and to participate in the greater story of their given religion. So, when people are struggling to make sense to get connected with what 's really going on they 're looking for a specific practice that will help them that 's why when you go to soul cycle there 's a special moment in where you click into your special soul cycle shoes and you know you are entering into the soul cycle space there 's this world here, and then there 's soul cycle land and it 's beautiful and magical but there 's this specific practice that when they do it, they know they 're entering into a sacred space they 're giving it a different sense of attention than they are in other places. So I think if we translate this into our world, there's certain things that we do, and we do really well, and that help people understand Jesus. Uh, In our church, we do a meal just because we're we're small enough right now that we do a meal every single Sunday. And we start the service when we break the bread. We say uh, we eat while we while we have our service, and as we break the bread, that begins our service. When you look at uh, the way that Matthew describes the Last Supper, he says, uh, Jesus broke the bread and he says, then after the meal, he took the cup, which means there was a, it was over a long meal that Jesus was giving them these teachings and talking, and at the end, they sealed it with the cup. And so we've kind of brought that practice. And so we know for our crew, that moment that we break the bread, something special is beginning to happen. And so for people who come in, that's become a translatable conversation for guests who come in. When the Harvard student comes in and is asking questions, hey, come and have some of this bread. They're asking questions after. Dude, where'd you get the bread? Why'd you break it together? And it's beginning... So these idea of what are specific... Uh, if people are looking for rituals, if they're already cleansing their houses with sage to get the bad spirits out, they're looking for something tangible that we can offer. So we find out what that means in our particular context and how that helps them. So here are possible adjustments. If these seem to be the things that are happening right now, then this is potential guesses as to what we can do. Um, Number 1, we've got to take our time. Providing people with meaning, purpose, community and ritual takes time. There is no TikTok video that's going to solve this. There's no Facebook post argument that's going to make sense of all this. We've got to recognize this is a time process and in doing so be willing to invest the time necessary that it's going to take to make real lasting change. My second guess is we've got to leverage internet carefully. It's good to be present in those spaces. I think Jesus would probably be there because it's a place where formation is happening. But we've got to recognize its negative effects on people too and be willing to help uh, leverage that and be an example in that community as well. The content we create, the posts that we make, the posts that we like, send intended and unintended messages to the communities that know us and don't know us really well. So as we engage, recognize that's maybe your most public witness that you have. And so if you're like me and you realize, like, I, I just can't manage that. I'm not good at it. And I, I know the negative effects on my heart. I've just taken a step back. And maybe one after 10 years, I can finally figure it out. And they'll have something better by then. Uh, but this realization of there's, if you can't be absent from it, figure out how to engage in it well. Um, use that space intentionally for ministry purposes and see what God can do with it. Third thing is focus on discipleship. Um, this idea that every single one of us is a disciple and a disciple maker, as Bonnie was saying, that we've got somebody we're discipling and being discipled by. Um, you, ever, you ever heard the story? It's a really strange scripture. They're traveling to bring the, uh, the ark back after it had been lost in battle, and there's a guy named Uzzah the cart tips over, and Uzzah goes to catch it, and he's struck dead on the spot. I was like, why, Lord? <laughs> What did Uzzah do? He was trying to save it from catching it. But there's a strange uh, commentary set that begins to help us understand this idea that the ark was always supposed to be carried. They put it on the poles. It was always designed to go on the shoulders. They would take 30 or 40 or so hundred steps. They'd stop, make a sacrifice, pick it up back in. There was a sacred and prescribed way, and instead they put it on the cart there is a sacred and prescribed way for doing the life of a Jesus follower and it's being a disciple and discipling people around us. There's no other way we can do that. And so that being said, recognizing that that's the calling and so I think that the hard question is is identifying our own thing in our own life. What's the cart in our life? What's the thing that we've offloaded ministry onto so that we don't have to do it ourselves? What's the easy way out when God is saying, hey, there's a sacred and prescribed way to do this. Follow God and love people in a way that helps them understand and know Jesus well. Um, So similarly, we have to ask ourselves the question of what we win people with, we have to keep them with. What we bait people with, we have to keep them with when it comes to the way that we're bringing in lost people into the church conversation. And so... uh, we say we, we fight, feed, and find. We find, feed, and fight for the lost people in Boston right now. We recognize it takes about 40 hours to make one friend. It's about 40 hours of investment from someone becoming a stranger to finally having enough influence in somebody's life to begin the conversation of them coming to know Jesus. And so for us, we recognize that if it takes 40 hours, it's going to, I can't reach 600 people in my present moment of being a dad right now. It's just impossible. But to say, who's the... Where's the one person I can invest 40 hours? What's the five lunches, the two dinners, the four coffees that'll add up to a relationship that'll help someone be open to a conversation of Jesus? And uh, when you think about it, that's a drastically different way of reaching out to people in our community. It's not inviting them to an experience, an event. It's us taking the 40 hours on our own. Um, And boy, think about how wild that is when you let that play out. When you've given somebody 40 hours, when you found someone who has a small appetite for spirituality, you give them 40 hours of time, 40 hours of question. By the time they're ready to begin moving towards Jesus, there's a lot of relationship there. You have the ability to be the number one translator in their life for why we do things in the big service and the big gatherings together. And so, what an exciting thing for someone who comes from a different background to say. That's why uh, in our crew, it's been a great experience to see uh, when someone comes in. We have people who, again, they don't really believe in Jesus. And someone will sit with them at the table. Okay, so when we pray, this is what we mean. This is who we're praying to, and this is why we speak this way. When we move into, sometimes we do worship and music in the church and things like that. When we move to the music part, this is why we sing the songs. And so when you think about it, someone comes and they're getting an explanation in that particular way. Fourth, create spaces for people to ask questions. Give opportunity for people to find the inconsistencies in their own broken worldview. Like I said before, People who have walked away from faith, they're making guesses as well. And sometimes if you give people the right questions or enough time to continue asking questions, they begin to realize their worldview is broken too. That they were holding other people to an unhealthy standard. And if they were to shift that same standard to their own way of thinking, it wouldn't hold up either. So give people the chance to ask questions. Uh, Build non-confrontational moments where people can practice saying their theology out loud. In 2007, they found that 48% of students were leaving the faith upon their first year of college. Wow, the the only thing that kept that other 52% active in their faith was that they had older people in their life that they were talking about their faith with them, primarily parents. I was telling Richie earlier that we were looking at this passage in Deuteronomy 6 where it's the most important theological frame in all the Bible, the Shema, that people recite thousands and millions of times day after day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus would have recited this thousands of times as a kid. The passage that comes directly after that is, parents, when your children ask you about these things, that realization that uh, it's up to us, we can't offload discipleship to somebody else. That parents, it's our primary goal, role. The reason why we're here is that he didn't say, Pastor, when they ask you about these things. He said, Parents, when your children ask you about these things, So it means something significant for us. Um, again, so this is where the stack that's a little scarier, and I think we're, we're... I just read an article two weeks ago that InterVarsity did a study on all their secular campuses. 70%. They said 70% of students have walked away in their first year now. So it's tipped from 48% in 2007 to now 70% just now. They did another stat that was kind of scary. Only one in four college students stated that the church was a source of comfort and understanding in their lives. So we've got a tremendous opportunity here as parents to capture this particular moment, to recognize there's an there's a influencing force that's going to test the level of our discipleship that seems to come freshman year of every college moment. And so if that's the case, how do we build onroads into that now? Number five, create deep community. Like we talked about before, what are opportunities to engage? Like Pastor Jeff was saying, the small group where I have to sit next to Sister Fufu and I've got to hear her tell me about these wild things that I necessarily not believe in, but it's helping me form my faith. Um, so how do we create spaces where people are open and comfortable enough to ask deep and real meaningful questions? Lastly, number six, provide volunteer opportunities that provide rich purpose. Um, A friend of mine once said this, uh, responsibility is the miracle grow for discipleship. Pastor John gave me a job when I was in youth group that I was to note everyone who was there and who wasn't there. And I had to mail cards to everyone who was absent. Every single week, he gave me a little folder with a list. And I knew if I didn't do that, the people who had left were not getting a card. And there was a chance that they were going to feel like they weren't welcome to the youth group. When he presented me with that responsibility, I had an opportunity, one of two things. Rise to the occasion and realize this is my job, this is what I'm called to do, this is what I can do to help make this system function and people follow Jesus. Or realize that I, I'm not at that place yet, and this isn't as valuable to me as I thought it was, and so I'm walking away. So when we introduce real responsibilities, real uh, things that have weight and meaning to them in people's life, people, it's going to be a a... It's a Kind of a nice diagnostic tool to say, hey, either you're going to rise, this is truly going to be a part of your spirituality, it's going to change you forever, or there's a chance for you to realize this isn't valuable enough and it's time for you to walk away kind of thing. And so when we ask somebody to do something, we've got to connect the dots between this particular activity and why it means something to the world around them and how it helps them understand and know God better. So when we invite somebody, hey... It'd be great for you to read your Bible. It'd be great for you to contact this person. Why? Because that's the kind of thing that God would do. That, that satisfies the heart of God. In doing so, you're doing the very exact same thing that Jesus did. And there's no way to know him better than to do the things that he did. Not just to know the teachings of Jesus, but follow the way of Jesus, um, which is exciting. So we'll pause there, and I'm going to give a few, a few guesses as to why I think Pentecostalism is a really, really great contender in this particular moment. So... Uh, let's talk about that. Do those seem to be effective ways? I don't even know how to re- just open it up for comment, dialogue. Have you found that people are hungry for meaning, ritual, community? Uh, have you found that these particular ways of focusing on discipleship have been helpful in conversation so far? Or anything that we've talked about in the last 15 minutes? Yeah, yeah. thank
1: you. Yes. Yeah, sure. So when I started <clears throat> um my biblical counseling courses, one of the thing one of the articles I had to read was about um, it was i believe it took place in England where it was a rise in self mutilation accidents yikes uh, there's a point <laughs> um and it was people who felt like there was something wrong with themselves Mm. and as they searched online for other people who felt the same way they found a community Mm. and so they adopted that community's way of thinking and explanation for why they felt empty and so then they proceeded with their way of doing things and uh, it was explanation was I have two arms so I'm not whole so but I think that that speaks to the fact that people are looking for people who understand what they feel Mm. and can say I felt that way too and here's what's made a difference and I think that is speaks to community whereas if people come in and say, oh, "I feel a certain way," and you're like, "Well, you're just gonna have to pray about that," mm. like they feel like, "Oh, okay, well, you don't understand." Mm. So I think talking about community is also involves us letting down our guard mm. to be honest enough with people to say, "Yeah, no, I struggle too," mm. and I understand what you're saying. So let's kind of do this together. You know? mm-hmm. And I think that speaks to a lot of people as opposed to you always having the answer because you've got it 100% right and they need mm-hmm. to just come up to your level.
0: Yeah, that, that's, not, that's
1: not community.
0: Yeah, and, and it's crazy because as you say that, you're recognizing that in community, someone provided an alternate meeting that competed with their original meeting and, took, and won.
1: Yeah, they were able to tell their story in a different way. Mm. and I think that's what people want is do you know my story and can you add meaning to my story
2: Mm. wow there is another concept to this we as Pentecostal people should realize too is that the spirit of God would speak through us in our conversations with people that thoughts would come to us many times we shy away from them but it would be good to say listen I just sense you have a need or it might, he might, the Lord might even give you what that need is mm. and, and, broach the subject in that aspect. Cause that's, that, that's who we are. We're a supernatural people. We, we move in that realm of the supernatural because we have a supernatural God. And I think that is something that's being forgotten or sort of drifting away from us to expect, to expect God to give us that word of knowledge that word of understanding, to be able to see. And I, I do that. I look at people. I just don't look at them. I said, Lord, is there something there do you want? When I was a young person, we used to work for Teen Challenge, and we go on the streets in Brooklyn. And I remember one day one of, the, one of the girls who was the leader of it said, listen, if you don't tell them, they're going to go to hell. If you don't tell them, they're going to. And, and that's been a prayer. My Lord, you know, who is this person? Is there something that you want me to tell them? Is there some way that I could strike up some sort of, you know, conversation with them that would help them on their walk with you? And I think that's what's something we, we need to keep in mind, that we do have a supernatural resource for our daily life, not just to look at people as people, but how do I reach out? How do I bring them into community?
0: Yeah, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. All right, seeing the glazy look in everyone's eyes, I'm going to wrap this thing up here. So, I think, again, I can talk, this is the home crowd. I think Pentecostalism is perfectly poised to do well in this situation. If you've looked at videos on YouTube, if you look at pictures on Facebook, every single thing now has a comment section, which means people are now living with the expectation that they are not just part, not spectating their participants in the dialogue that they can say something in the comment section and get a hold of uh, the author. They could get a hold. They could make a difference in the conversation. And so with that realization that people are expecting to be participants in any given arena that they're in, Pentecostalism is perfect because we are a group of participants, not spectators that uh, we come to the table with the belief that anyone can be empowered by God to do the ministry of God, that any single person can go from doing something regular and whatever, and on, on any given moment be empowered by the Spirit to make drastic impact and change in someone's life. That's part of our DNA. It's been the fabric of who we are since we've begun. And so that being said, if we lean into that, if we lean into that expectation that that's who we are, that opens up tremendous doors for people who are looking for that uh, in our community around us. One of the things that we're starting to just beta test with our crew in in Boston is we've got a practice articulating in a gospel that makes sense beyond behaviors and just afterlife questions. So most young people don't think of the Bible as an authoritative book that has meaning and value in their life, right? It's just another book amongst many ways that help us understand or there are wise teachings that were collected by people over time. And so we've got to practice articulating the gospel without starting with scripture first. That's a scary idea. I know it sounds pretty wild. Um, so, for example, <laughs> I have a friend of mine who ne- I call everything the Dan test because my buddy who's an agnostic. I've known him, we've been friends since we were eleven. At one point, he was asking why do I why am I in ministry? Why am I doing? And I said, Why do I believe the Bible to be true? And I said, Yeah. Well, in 2 Timothy three seventeen, all scriptures God breathed, inspired. He looks at me and he goes, yeah, you use the Bible to prove the Bible. That's really good, Andrew. And I was like, hit me like a ton of bricks, because I didn't never thought about this idea that he maybe doesn't consider that valuable. And so if that's not true, if that holds no meaning, no value, then where do I begin the conversation with a person like that? So, for example, in church two weeks ago, I was talking about the idea of what were the instincts of the early church and this idea that if you look in the, in the history, the early church is really good at serving. Jesus seems to be fascinated by serving, and so I wanted to start with a scripture on serving because that's what makes the most sense to me. But I realized I had to start a step behind. Say, hey, how many of you guys like Mother Teresa? Like, for some reason, you're, you're enamored by the things that she did. There's a reason why humanity stops and takes note at someone who does something like that, because we're captivated by the way that she served. So I took it another step. I said, there's a chance that you are wired for service. That you like service as part of your human DNA to be a person who appreciates service. Why? Because there's a God out there who is a God of service and invites us to serve. And I think I see that God most clearly in Jesus Christ. And then I go into the passage of Mark 10. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So it's crazy. I realized as much as I wanted to start here, I had to start the conversation here and find the point of universal meaning that makes sense with every person there. And so that being said, if there's people in our Corner that aren't convinced of the Bible it doesn't mean the conversation is dead, it just means we've got to start it a bit earlier. And so, kind of making that an instinctual response in us um, is pretty important. Lastly, make room for community that can't be substituted. We talked about this, there's, there's nothing, this is great, it's a wonderful tool and a resource, but it cannot replace a community of people that. You can't dodge, you can't hide from, and so find creative ways to do that in a way that uh, someone gets invited to a place like that. Um, and it's wow. So that being said, let's open it up for questions, and then we'll call it quits here. I also, let me give one line of encouragement before we, before we close. There are people out there who are going to give you stats and say this is the worst time to be a Christian ever. I want to suggest that maybe it's the best time to be a Christian ever. (laughs) That if you were to gauge it based upon opportunity out there, then the world is ripe with opportunity. And maybe this isn't a time that we got to shrink back. Maybe it's a time that we press forward. And there's amazing and exciting opportunities for us. I mean, there's millions of people who are hungry for spirituality, and we have the best of it everywhere. And so if we pause and take these moments to consider that differently, that maybe there's a chance of a, a wild revival happening in a way that we could have never imagined Uh, Because we stopped, pivoted, and think about what God wanted to do. Any last questions?
1: I want to say really appreciated um, everything that you shared and the perspective and the different um, uh, adjustments we can make. And I certainly, that's how I feel. You know, I think we look back, kind of like your message last night. We look back at what God did, and that should fill us with faith. Mm -hmm. And so instead of, well, we always just have to get back to what things were, we're filled with faith, with God did, and now we look ahead. All right, God, what do you want to do? And right, instead of saying, this is the worst time to be a Christian, things are different now, we say, all right, God, you placed me here now. And people are hungry. That means, God, what do you want to do now? And that's, that's how I feel. That's how I think we should feel when, when we look at this filled with faith for what, what God wants to do in us now.
0: Yeah. And isn't that so cool that the impulses are already there? Like the instinct that drove us to make certain outreaches in the past that were great success and amazing is the same impulse that's driving us now. It's just recognizing like, okay, where did that impulse first – I mean, it's it's so cool. It's part of our DNA already. It's just getting back to it, which is exciting.
3: Um, Earlier when you were talking about the very beginning, the first question about the church, what has changed? Well, back when I was younger, and a lot of us younger, and there was black and white. There wasn't really a big gray area. You knew you knew what was you were supposed to do and what you weren't supposed to do. And now there's a big gray area. There's there wasn't there's not a slow fade to gray anymore. Everything is gray, mm. and it goes with along with everything you've been saying this whole the whole morning that even the internet it's gray. If you want to find a, you want to find something, you're going to find what you want, whether that's right or not. It's going to be there. It's gray, and with regard to the self mutilation, you know, occult aspect. It's gray. People, as a general, don't want to be a person. They want to be a people. Mm. So they're going to find something. So they're going to find a cult. They're going to find, you know, something or other on the Internet, or they're going to find church. And so we need to be the ones out there showing them there's more than just the gray. You know, the gray is okay with some things, but with a lot of things, it's really not
0: that good. Yeah, so how do we and teach people to evaluate in a world of gray? How do you evaluate? What's the truth? That's the
3: that's, that's that's problem.
4: Mm. Hey. <laughs> um, I just have a question. Um, being in ministry too, I'm sorry, I, I don't know how to speak until microphone. Um, I think that I, so I'm all about, like, mentoring, discipleship. Um, street evangelism is, is probably great, and, you know, it starts to seed to be planted, but unless there's discipleship and mentoring followed up by that, like, it's hard to see. I don't know what can come from that, right? But, so obviously, like, I can't just sit with, with all these people for 40 hours, you know, all the time, and so how do you kind of, um, I don't know what the word is, uh, how do you rationalize with that? Because, I mean, there's so many people in my life, in, in ministry in Costa Rica, and also in my own personal life in New Jersey, and you too, all of mm-hmm. us, right? And so, like, how do we rationalize with the fact that, I mean, really, it, to be able to really pour into mentor people, like, there's not going to be that many. And so, I don't know. What do, what do we do moving forward?
0: <laughs> that's, that's kind of the, I think Bonnie's ready to rock and roll. Go ahead. Can I answer
3: that? Yes. Yeah. You know, like, the worldly, like, pyramid schemes? Yeah.
0: That's it. Multi-level marketing with Jesus. That's it. That's it. Yeah. yeah That's I, it. I, Jesus right? I think if if it, Jesus
4: had twelve, so he had the th-
0: <laughs> three. He had three. one he had or three. he was really three. close. Three. And then the We three. had John, then he got James, Pete, and John, the three, and then the twelve. So I think there's that real moment of uh being okay with that. Like, hey, there's gonna be three people I can really influence really closely in my life. And not to distinguish, those are all different types of ministry. When you minister to thousands of people, that's one type of ministry. But the level of, of that, like, and so if Jesus recognized those stages and the level of investment, and he, he lost one of the 12. So even that, I was like, man, that ratio is not so great. If, if, uh, and if Jesus, you know, if that was part of an acceptable mode of ministry for him, was choosing to focus on 1, 3, and 12 in the masses, um, then Yeah. And then you
2: got to manage the tension that you show favorites.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. it's real. And then, so then, what is what is the really manageable thing, right? And uh, yeah, it's it's a tension. But I think as as we all shift into this mode of ministry, like each one of us ought to have a one, three, twelve, in masses. Um, it's kind of scary to me that that's. Uh, so it's easier for me to say being out of, uh, was out of full-time church ministry, working at the network for a bit and realizing like, uh, man, what, what a bummer to not be able to have that 1, three, twelve. when I was, the false expectation of a pastor not being able to have 1, 3, and 12 and only being able to have masses and have the same exact relationship with every single person in the community no matter what. Yeah, and Jesus didn't have it either. So it's that flipping on that and saying, okay, so we have commitments to each, we minister to each in a different way, but also recognizing that's for all of us. Like, there's going to be three people you get to invest in really well. And don't be ashamed of that, but accept that, like, and, and, yeah.
1: And I think ownership gets in the way, too, sometimes. Mm. Because when I got saved and started walking with jesus there wasn't just one person that i had one close relationship with but that was shared between several different people mm. because each one of those people shared something different with my life and if i would have gravitated to just one there would have been so much i would have lost out on because god was using it wow in a different ways so like my word would be to have caution to the person mm. who's looking for 1, three, twelve, and a big following, to not feel the, the ownership of that ministry because it belongs to the Lord.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's wild how those things shape, right? You often see how Jesus would speak to the masses and then come back and have a conversation with the disciples. And I think it's because the ministry with the disciples was impacted by the ministry with the masses. And the ministry with the disciples impacted the ministry of the masses. So saying those things, if you only have one of those, then you might be anemic in something else, which is kind of wild.
2: What I've found in, in my own life is coming out of a large background, dealing with so many people, is that when you would move in the realm of the Holy Spirit, if you cultivate that in your life, he will give you the statements, because I don't know how many men people came up to me years later, you know, Pastor, you said this to me, Pastor, I don't remember saying it, but it was just the Holy Spirit mm. speaking through us. If we would keep that in the background of our minds, uh, no matter who we are, uh, Moses had a rod. Mm. Balaam had a donkey, and God spoke to the donkey. So if Mm. he spoke to the donkey, he would talk to any Mm. of us. Thank God. And that's always been an encouragement to me. Thank you, Lord. Come on. But if if we're open to that, if we Mm. we cultivate that in our own spiritual lives, Lord, today, speak through me. Mm. I might only touch this person for five minutes or maybe just for an hour or two, but you can give me the words. You can give me the statement that will make an everlasting impact into their lives. And he does. He does,
0: which is wild. Like, what an amazing thing that God would do that. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this moment of pause. Lord, I know sometimes it's not easy to take a look at the landscape and look out and see giants in the land. But Lord, we trust that there's milk and honey as well. Uh, there'll be moments of sweetness that you bring our way, God, of people who are already turning their disposition towards you. So God, I pray as we go back from this place, go back to homes and jobs and communities, God, I pray that you would uh, make those lights begin to shine. Lord, help us identify those people that are, are ready for a 40-hour investment of relationship and help us to own that conversation to realize, Lord, that is our calling as disciple makers. Lord, as we... Uh, as we mourn the fact of those who've lost their way, God, I pray, the story's not done yet. God, there's still open, open uh, doors for conversation and relationship. And so, God, I pray, would there be moments where the lights would come on, where the stories, the moments of discipleship that are buried deep would rise back to the surface and they'd come to know you again. So, God, position us. Lord, shape us, mold us, break us. Do what you have to do to make us your best instruments in this season. God, thank you Lord, you could have just sat us on the sideline and done all the work yourself, but you invite us to be part of the process. And in doing so, you make us like you. So God, shape us to fear your kingdom, Lord. We love you, we praise you. Bless you Bless us as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.